Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If you have a Bible, I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, Acts 13, 1 to 3. Hear these words from the book that we love. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brett. Hey, I don't know if you heard screaming. I do want to just assure you that your kids are safe. There's nothing wrong happening. They're just having a lot of fun. So we, that's how we like to do things here. I know we like to have some fun, so it's nice to um, hear our kids screaming and enjoying their time together in Liberty Kids. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series, so if you're new or visiting, we have been in the book of Revelation. We finished that up, and then we went into Easter. We did one sermon about the resurrection, because that's a really important thing. It's kind of why we're here. You exist. You've heard of Jesus in 21st century America, in Philadelphia, of all places. You've heard about Jesus because something happened 21 centuries ago. And so that has shaped us in certain ways and has shaped the church in certain ways that the church decided they were going to orient their lives around this moment, around the moment of the resurrection of Jesus. Something changed and the church grew and exploded. And we want to talk about what that means for us to be called out ones, people who are marked by the resurrection. We're different than the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but people in the world who aren't Christians, don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Something about that moment has changed uh, the course of the world, the course of our lives, the course as, as a church to be called out, to be different. It changes us. The word church literally means a called out assembly. So when we gather together or when Christians have gathered through the centuries, they are called out they, when they assemble like Avengers assemble, Christians assemble. When Christians assemble, we are called out. We are different. So followers of Jesus are called out of the world. And 1 Peter 2, 9 says that we are called into his wonderful light. There's something different about you, this, that the resurrection of Jesus should change you, and you should live differently than the, the world. The early church believed this. So despite the fact that they were being tortured and killed, people still wanted to be part of this weirdly attractive community. Can you imagine that? Like, people are being killed for Jesus, and people are like, sign me up. Why? Because they were living called out. They were living like called out ones. They knew that Jesus rose from dead, and that put them into action. So last week, as I talked about in, with the resurrection, the resurrection calls us to reorient our lives around it. The early church knew that. It's time to change our lives because of what Jesus did. 
And so when we look at the early church and we study the early church and we say, what are the distinguishing factors? What are the distinguishing things about the early church? What made them attractive? Larry Hurtado, he points out in one of his books that there's five ways they lived out the resurrection that made them different from the world. The first is that they were multi-ethnic. And we'll talk about that today. Secondly, they, were care, they gave care to the poor and those who are suffering. And Kyle's going to talk about that next week. Forgiveness is the third one. Like they, were, they radically forgave people. Like they truly believe that when Jesus said to his, the people who are murdering him, he prays to God and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Christians said we are people of forgiveness, radical forgiveness. They were anti-abortion and they were sexual counterculture. We're going to talk about all five of those things. May 2nd, we'll be on abortion, and then we'll talk about sexuality for two weeks on the 9th and 16th, which is why we're saying you can put your kids up at the fifth grade in Liberty Kids if you're not quite ready to talk about those topics yet. I will challenge you, though, that their friends are already talking about it. So I think it's really important, if you feel comfortable with it, to have your kids in there. And some of you maybe even need to have your kids not go to Liberty Kids that day. But that, we'll put that... Unlike the public school system, we will let you as parents make that decision for your kids, okay? All right, that's not a slight on the public school system, but it kind of is. Moving on. But you notice that it's what the early church did that made them different. Their actions spoke louder than their words. It wasn't that they had great verse-by-verse preaching. It wasn't how entertaining their band was that made people want to join. That's a 21st century or a 20th century American consumeristic way of looking at church. Find the best preaching, the best band, and I'll go to that church. And that's not what the early church did. They didn't really care about that stuff that much. Because their lives were different. Their practices were different. So it wasn't about what they said. It's about what they did. 21st century Christians say a lot, but we do very little. 21st century Christians blast everybody on Facebook that they can think of, and they say a lot, and they preach the Word of God a lot, and there's blogs all out in, this, in like the cyber world, all over the place. We hit Twitter, we hit Facebook, we hit Instagram, and we say a lot, but we do very little. Our actions do not speak louder than our words, and what I'm trying to say, what I want for us and I want for you, is for you to live like the resurrection happened. So today, I want you to realize this, that Jesus wants his church to be a physical manifestation of God's heart for the nations. Jesus wants that for his church, for you and me to be together as a physical manifestation of God's heart for the nations. And so today I want to talk about what it means for us to be multi-ethnic. I'm not talking about being multi-racial. See, race is a social construct, but ethnicity is a biblical one. Nations, anytime you read the word nations in your Bible, I want to say like 99 times out of 100, it's not referring to political nation states. That's a modern convention. It's talking about ethnicities. In fact, the Greek word is ethnos. So when you read the word nations, read the word in your head as ethnicities. God loves the nations. God loves ethnicities. 
So God's plan from Genesis to Revelation is to be someone who draws in the ethnicities. God's plan from Genesis to Revelation is that his people would be multi-ethnic. And so God wants Jesus' church, big C church, talking about all Christians of all times and all places, like when we say in the creed, the holy, Catholic, lowercase c, big C church, that church, but also little c church, our local churches, our local assemblies, are to be these called out ones, gathering together an alternative community where people of all ethnicities are welcomed and honored. And the world doesn't offer this. And we see that recently with the attacks on Asians in our, in our country. The world, as much as they want to talk about how great they are at being multi-ethnic, they really stink at it. We have a problem in our world. And what happens is we let the world work its way into our churches, and we let the world tell us how we should think about this on both sides of the political aisle. We let the world tell us how we should think about this. And what I want to do today is tell you how the Bible thinks about it. Because it doesn't matter what Evan thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what the Bible says about this. So I want to talk about the challenge of being a multi-ethnic church. And I'm going to talk about that a multi-ethnic church reflects God's heart and the multi-ethnic church follows God's lead. So first, let's talk about the challenge of a multi-ethnic church. Look at Acts 13, verse 1. And you might be like, this doesn't have any multi-ethnicity in it. Why would Evan pick this passage? But I'm going to talk about this in a second. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. A multi-ethnic church is difficult, but it's not impossible. What we see here in the church of Antioch, there's different people from all different backgrounds, from all different ethnicities, gathering together, praying, fasting, worshiping. Simeon, who's called Niger, Niger means black. It's his nickname that he's been given due to his complexion. Lucius is from Cyrene. He's from northern Africa. So you have a black man, a northern African man, and then you have Menaean, who's really, really interesting. Do you notice he's friend of Herod, the Tetrarch? Herod killed Jesus, and he's gathering with these people who are praying to Jesus. And then Saul, who later is renamed Paul, who writes a large part of the New Testament, Saul is a Jewish man who killed Christians. And then you have Barnabas. Barnabas is like, um, one pastor refers to Barnabas as like the human golden retriever. He's like, he's known as the son of encouragement. He's always like, hey, bro, you're doing awesome. We love you, man. Keep up the great work. High five and everybody. Even though people have red wristbands on, he's high fiving them. He loves people. But he's a Jew who's born in Cyprus. And Antioch is the first place that Christians, we find out in Acts, that are, where Christians are called Christians. 
And it's a very strategic city for the gospel, which is why the church is there. It's a major connecting point between the trade routes and the whole Roman Empire. And it's a multi-ethnic city. So their church or their gathering, their home meeting, let's say, reflects the multi-ethnicity of Antioch. See, in Antioch, they actually developed and they created and built walls to keep ethnic groups apart from each other. They actually built walls in the city because they realized what our world realizes today, when you get people together from different ethnicities and different nations, they tend to not get along. So let's build these walls to keep them away from each other. So the early church had to fight to make multi-ethnic gatherings a possibility. It didn't just happen. Christians are literally going through walls to gather and pray with Christians of other ethnicities. Literally are going through walls so they can pray together. So you and I won't go to home meetings because somebody once annoyed us with their political opinion. And here we got murderers and missionaries, Jews and Gentiles, gathering together at their home meeting. This is not our attitude. It's really not. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to pick on you. This is not my attitude either. You slight me once, bro. I write you off. You're done. I'm from Philly. Like, I'll remember what you did to me. I'll write you off. And then now you're saying I got to go to home meeting with you? Like, bro, you, you try, your, your buddy Herod tried to wrap us all up and kill us and take us away. And I'm going to be friends with this guy? No way. In Northeast Philadelphia, statistically, one in five people have been born outside the United States. It's very multi-ethnic. It's a multi-ethnic part of the city. One in five people are born outside the United States. And since the 1980s, there's been a significant increase in Eastern European people, which is why if you drive through the Bustleton section or the Somerton section of Northeast Philadelphia, you notice a lot of signs in a language that you cannot read. But that's not what our church looks like. And it's not what the churches in Northeast Philadelphia look like. They don't, a large majority of them do not reflect this multi-ethnicity that is present in the neighborhoods and the schools and the workplaces of Northeast Philadelphia. So here's what I'm saying to you guys. We have to fight for this. It's not just going to happen. I don't know if you realize this, but I am white. I'm a Western Anglo man. I am not naturally drawn to people who look different than I do. So I have to fight for it. But it doesn't matter if I think it's a good idea. Like, we don't do diversity or multi-ethnicity for multi-ethnicity's sake. We do it because God wants us to do it. Because a multi-ethnic church reflects God's heart. So look at chapter 13 again in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God's heart is to bring all ethnicities together under the banner of Christ. The work that the Holy Spirit is bringing Saul and Barnabas into is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But this has always been God's heart. It wasn't like God woke up one day in Acts chapter 13 and was like, you know what, we should actually go reach the Gentiles. 
we should actually reach out to non-Jews. This is a really good idea. Everybody, Trinity, we all agree? Okay, cool. We're going to go ahead and do that. No. Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham so he would be a blessing to what? The nations. Daniel 7 talks about one like the Son of Man, which we know now from the New Testament is Jesus. He's king over all the nations. Acts chapter 8, Peter preaches the gospel to an, uh, sorry, Philip preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, a man from Ethiopia. Acts chapter 10, Peter baptizes the gen, a Gentile named Cornelius and his entire family. Revelation chapter 7, when we look at a picture of heaven, what it looks like right now, it's people from all nations, all ethnicities, all different backgrounds, worshiping Jesus, worshiping God in heaven at the throne, singing to him. Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 tells us to go and spread the gospel and baptize and tell people what I've taught them. To who? The nations. This is God's heart. And it's crazy that I even have to point this out, but Jesus wasn't a white American man. He wasn't a blonde Swedish dude. He was Middle Eastern. This is not a liberal thing. It's a God thing. You and I don't look like Jesus, but we've heard about him. Why? Because the church took this seriously, and they realized this is God's heart, and they took the gospel to the nations. And we are called brothers and sisters because of that. So for us to be called out ones, we have to pursue this. But this is not where our church is, and it's not where the American church is. According to statistics, only 13.7% of churches in America are considered multi-ethnic. So I know that when we speak about this topic, some of us get really uncomfortable. It may be because of your background, you've, you've heard this preached at you instead of like talking to you maybe from the Bible. It comes from a different angle, maybe it comes from uh, different uh, resources, secular resources. Some of us have heard people talk about multi-ethnicity but have done nothing about it. And most of us, though, are get uncomfortable because our identities and our priorities are misplaced. But I don't want you to tune out because this is what God wants. This is God's heart. Every Christian, despite their ethnicity, needs to take responsibility for this. But the struggle isn't modern. The church of Jesus has always struggled with this. In the ancient world, what they used to do, they would have table fellowship with one another. And table fellowship was a sign of acceptance, of hospitality. So when you ate with somebody, you said that I'm one of them. So when you gathered at a table with somebody, you said, we're part of the same team. This is my crew, which is why it's so controversial that Jesus is eating with prostitutes and sinners. It's controversial because he's saying implicitly, I'm with them. So here in, we read in the New Testament that Peter, Peter, our guy, Peter, he's in Antioch. And he's, he grew up 
as a Jewish man, he's taught to avoid Gentiles, but Christ has freed him and he gave himself up so that he could make Jew and Gentiles brothers. So Peter ends up in Antioch and he's eating with Gentile Christians, but when some of his homies from his old hood show up, he stops eating with the Gentiles because he's afraid of his Jewish friends saying stuff about him, that he's not committed because now Peter, he's eating like the Gentiles. Peter, I saw you put bacon on that hamburger. What's that about, Peter? How could you do that, Peter? You're not committed. You're not one of us. You're one of them. So Peter gets upset. Now, did they say, I saw you put bacon on that cheeseburger? No. But that's the general idea, right? They see Peter eating with them, and Peter's saying when he's eating with them, I'm one of them. But Peter realizes when his Jewish friends show up, they're not going to like that. So what Peter does is he bails. He quickly gives up reflecting the heart of God to appease his friends. And Paul says that even Barnabas is pulled into this. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Barnabas, Acts chapter 13, hanging out with Simeon and Lucius. And he's hanging out with Menaean. And when he sees Peter bail on the Gentiles, Barnabas walks away too. So what does Paul do? Paul in Galatians chapter 2, 14 says this, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, Peter, your life is not in step with the gospel. So when you're hanging out with the Gentiles, you eat and you hang out with the Gentiles, but when the Jews show up, for some reason, you don't want to do that anymore. See, Paul notices that Peter's attitude is not in step with the truth of the gospel, he says. So many times when this subject comes up, all we hear as pastors is you need to just preach the gospel. This is a gospel issue. He says it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. You're not eating with those people anymore because they look different than you and your old homies, they show up and you decide to bail on your new friends. That's out of step with the truth of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. The natural outworking of the gospel is that God is reconciling all ethnicities to himself and to each other. Read Ephesians. That's what he's talking about. So put aside the fact that just preach the gospel was the favorite line of pro-slavery people. Just put that aside. And pro-segregation people, they used to throw that around all the time. Just preach the gospel. Just put that aside for now. When I say, when you say, I've been saved by Jesus, it puts you into this new multi-ethnic family. You don't get Jesus without his family. And the wild thing is, you don't get to choose who gets to be part of the family. And this new family gives you a new identity, so your identity in Christ is wrapped up in identifying with other Christians. You don't get Jesus without his family. This idea that you can just stay at home and listen to podcasts and say, I'm a Christian, that New Testament has no concept of that. Not because they don't have podcasts, because they're like, we're a family. you got to show up to dinner every once in a while. you got to show up to the family barbecue. I know Uncle Joe is weird, 
But you got to show up and hang out with Uncle Joe. See, most of us, when it comes to identifying with other Christians, we have to learn to identify with people who don't look like us or act like us or have the same cultural traditions as us. And when you look at Christianity across the globe, where is Christianity exploding right now? In the southern hemisphere. So your family is getting increasingly filled with black and brown people. And guess what? You don't get to decide. I don't get to decide what the Holy Spirit does in the southern hemisphere. I don't get to decide if they're going to be my family. They just are because they have the Holy Spirit. And so my family is growing, and they don't look like me, but with a new family comes a new identity. So listen, it's family talk time. We need to have a family talk. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Miracle with Herb Brooks and the 1980 USA hockey team. One of my favorite movies. I don't know why. Every time it's on, i got to watch it. I don't know why. It's, they probably got like two stars, but I love it. And there's this one line, right? They play this game, and all the guys are on the bench, and they're looking at the girls in the stands, and they're saying different things, and they're all, like, chatting. And they don't do so hot in the game. So Herb Brooks makes them stay afterwards, and he makes them skate suicides back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until they're absolutely exhausted. And he said to them about being a USA player, he says, when you put on that jersey, the name on the front is a heck of a lot more important than the one on the back. Too many of us are concerned with the name on the back of our jersey than the one on the front. Too many of us look at our identities that are supposed to be second place. They're supposed to be the identities on the back of my jersey and the identity of Christ, which is on the front of my jersey. I constantly am putting the one that's supposed to be second as first in my life. Too many of us want to put our identity in Christ as the name on the back of the jersey and put our other identities on the front. And Jesus says, you can't do that. Too many of us are worried about being Republicans than we are Christians. Too many of us are worried about being Democrats than we are Christians, conservatives or liberals or male or female or white or black or rich or poor. So you don't lose those identities, but my other identities always, 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 Always take a back seat to my identity in Christ. Every time. That's the way it looks like to live this out, to live out the resurrection, to say my identity in Christ is on the front of my jersey. Doesn't matter what's on the back. Sure, there's other identities back here. But I put this one first. When I put on the jersey, that name is more important than any other name. That name, Jesus, is more important than anybody else's name. Look, I'm worried. I have fears about the Black Lives Matter organization. I have fears about race, critical race theory, and I have fears about wokeness. I, I worry about those things. Pastor Matt Chandler, he's in Texas, he talks about this too, and he says that oftentimes, though, we treat those things like the boogeyman. So when a pastor who week in and week out preaches the gospel and then out of the gospel speaks up against, about these topics or about against racism, we act like there's a monster under his bed that actually doesn't exist there. 
and we're looking for wokeness or we're looking for progressivism or that smells like critical race theory. And once we hear something that kind of might sound like being liberal, we claim that he's abandoned the gospel. And I'm not talking about, thankfully, like at this church, I haven't really felt that. I've talked to friends that I know who week in and week out preach the gospel. And one time they say something about racism and they're called liberal. They've abandoned the gospel. They've given in to that organization or that race theory. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. Like, I'm really happy for you. But see, the Marxist underpinnings of the Black Lives Matter organization is dangerous. It is. That's not a political statement. That's a historical one. Because when Marxism gets fully employed, people die. But the sentence is true. Black lives do matter. They do. They're not saying they matter more than everybody else's. They're saying they should matter just as much as everybody else's. When I say that, that's what I'm saying. I don't care what BLM is saying, the organization. I'm saying when I say Black Lives Matter, I'm saying they should matter just as much as everybody else's. And that's not a political statement. That's a biblical one that comes out of the Imago Dei that my black friend, my black brother or sister in Christ, my brown brother or sister in Christ, they were born with the image of God. And I work hard and you work hard to protect that and to save that and rescue that and, and watch over it. And in terms of critical race theory, I do believe that you are delusional at best if you think that one race is responsible for all the evils of the world. I think you've lost touch with reality, and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just looking around. It's not, again, it's not a political statement. When you look at sin in the Bible, we're all responsible for the brokenness of the world, not one ethnicity. It's just not possible. You know how hard it is to be always wrong? It's almost as hard as being always right. And so, like, for me, when I think about these things, I say, all right, there's things here, there's meat here I can chew up and I can eat, and there's other things I have to spit out the bones. Like, I do think that there are systems and there are structures that have been set up by the dominant culture that have put people behind and held them back. And again, that's not a political statement. That's a theological one. I don't know how you don't get there theologically. I really don't. If sinful people are building systems, they're inevitably going to be broken in some places. That's a theological statement. And what I'm trying to draw you away from, what I'm afraid of, is to admit that. I can't admit that. You can't admit that because you're afraid and I'm afraid of protecting the party lines of my second identity. Like you should be able to say these things. And you should be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Like, isn't it exhausting for you to maintain the party line? Like, isn't that exhausting? Like, isn't it tiring to take stats or Bible verses and then do these, like, interpretive gymnastics to justify doing nothing? Like, isn't that exhausting to you? It's exhausting to me. Like, I'm tired of having to do these interpretive gymnastics around Bible verses with people because I don't want them to think that I'm a liberal. But that I don't believe the Bible. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm not doing it anymore. 
And I don't want you to do it anymore either. The gospel frees you. The gospel is not left, right, or center. The gospel is transcendent. It transcends all these categories. It transcends all your second identities. To be called out as a Christian is when everybody is putting their second identities as second. We need to be different. The world is saying, no, my second identity is primary, and we need followers of Jesus championing, 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 backing up, protecting multi-ethnicity in their lives and their churches. Otherwise, what's going to happen is somebody else is going to take your spot at the table. Like, we're called to be representatives of Jesus for the world, and God has given the care of our world over to us, and we've abandoned our seat at the table, the seat that's rightfully ours. When we put our secondary identities as first, we're going to abandon our seat at the table, and then we wonder why the world's a mess. We wonder why the race conversation is a mess, because Christians have abandoned their seats at the table. It's our seats. It's our table. In 2016, 4% of black Protestant Christians voted for Donald Trump. 4%. As opposed to 67% for white Protestants. And when I talked to white Protestants, they couldn't comprehend a world in which anybody who claims the name of Christ could vote for a Democrat, particularly Hillary Clinton. And then I heard the opposite the same way. I talked to black and brown friends who voted for Hillary Clinton. They're like, how could anybody vote for a Republican? And did that make us all cross ethnic lines to find out why? No. No. We didn't want to find out why. Instead, we surrounded ourselves with people who look like us and think like us, and we cast aspersions on anyone who voted different than us. And it might sound anecdotal, but the stats were virtually the same going into 2020. Nothing changed. And that's his problem on both sides. It really is. It's not all the Republicans got it wrong and all Democrats were right or Democrats got it wrong, Republicans are right. It's a problem on both sides. Nobody's crossing lines and saying, hey, tell me why you voted for them. We just say, nah. They either hate babies or they hate black and brown people. See, any move towards multi-ethnicity will mean that you have to give up something. And I simply don't want to. Like, if I'm truly being honest, I do not want to give up anything because I love to be comfortable. But to cross ethnic lines to talk with people who are different than me is going to be uncomfortable. To get to know them, invite them into my life and my church, is going to be uncomfortable. And if we're unwilling to give up something for Jesus, it reveals that our comfort is really an obsession, or what the Bible calls an idol. And when I'm focused on that obsession, when I think that, when I'll start to think that being a called out is really just reaching out to people who are the same as me, or I'll think that it's just pointless to even try this multi-ethnic thing. Man, I wish I could talk today. It'd make this sermon so much better. But then I'll start to claim, too, if this obsession takes over my life, I'll start to claim that people's experiences weren't their experiences. When somebody says to me, hey, this happened to me, and I go, well, are you sure? Like, maybe this is really what happened. And I'll start to throw statistics at them, and I'll try to convince their brains that they're wrong 
when it's their hearts that are broken. Too many of us spend time trying to convince people's brains that they're wrong when it's their hearts that are broken. It's a fool's errand. And what that really reveals to me is how selfish I am. And like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, when we become obsessed with something like comfort and we become obsessed with selfishness, they'll eventually destroy us. See, the thing that we won't give up will become this insatiable desire that will eventually destroy you. But multi-ethnic church also follows God's lead. So if you're like me, you're like, all right, this is a lot. It's kind of heavy. I'm trying to think through this and process this. Where do we start? Well, look at Acts chapter 13. And remember, the Holy Spirit just calls Saul and Barnabas, and he says, set them aside for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, we can be a physical manifestation of God's heart for the nations by following God's lead. Again, Saul and Barnabas are going to go reach out to the Gentiles, but it's the Holy Spirit. Notice it's the Holy Spirit who initiates this. Like, couldn't this be the sermon for you? Couldn't this be the conversation for you in home meetings this week that it's the Holy Spirit initiating this into your life? We, like, we have to be open to this. We have to be asking the Holy Spirit to show us the way forward. Paul and Barnabas needed to know what to do next. The church of Antioch needed to know what to do next. All they needed, though, to do is to follow. And fortunately for us, Jesus showed us the way forward. And all I have to do is follow. There's that old hymn, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. See, Jesus gave up the comfort in his life in heaven. And he came down to earth and he gave up his life for a bunch of people who honestly don't look like him. Because of sin, we're completely different than him. And so that he does this so Jew and Gentile could be saved and God's multi-ethnic heart could be shown in Jesus' church and through the Holy Spirit, God brings a bunch of sinners who look differently than each other and makes peace between them and makes peace between their ethnicities possible. Like, you can't do this. You can't do this without first understanding that this is what Jesus has done and made a way for. And all you have to do is follow. And because Jesus made a multi-ethnic church a reality by giving up his life for it, I can make it a reality by giving up my comforts for it. So we have to fight against anything that threatens this. We have to learn from those who look differently than us, white from non-white and vice versa. See, I commit to you that I will learn from brothers and sisters of different ethnicities I'll read their books, I'll listen to their sermons, and I'll maintain friendships and get better at friendships and make new ones. And I promise you that other leaders here at Liberty are doing the same and they're praying for the same things. And I know it's hard. You know how I know it's uncomfortable? It's because whenever we do an event with the Turkish Cultural Center, gotta be honest, it's pretty low attendance. I know it's uncomfortable to gather with people not only who look differently than us, but also believe differently than us. But this is what we're called to. So we're going to keep doing it. And I'm going to keep saying, hey, we should go there. We should do this. It's awesome. It's great. I hope you guys will join us. 
but we're going to keep reaching out to our local schools because our local schools do reflect what Northeast Philly looks like. So we have to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. That includes having hard conversations about whatever topic we deem as off-limits. You have to be willing to have the hard conversations, and you have to be willing to put the secondary identities where they belong, on the back of the jersey. And that includes you have to be not afraid of making mistakes. And if you are somebody who makes mistakes a lot, like me, you're afraid of making more. But we have to be unafraid of making mistakes. And if you're on the other side, you have to give grace when mistakes are made. There's no grace in our world. The reason why people are afraid to have conversations and is because they're afraid of making mistakes because there's no grace on the other side. We have to be different than that. We have to be called out. We have to be able to have these hard conversations in our home meetings and make mistakes, and then somebody who disagrees with us gives us a ton of grace. We can't keep living like this. So I'm committed to, committing to you, like I committed to you last year, that we would have hard conversations. We would talk about hard topics. And we have to do this. Like something that will always sit with me. If you remember Pastor Jay and his, Jay Sharpenberger, his family used to be part of our church before they moved to Atlanta. When he preached, he said that my sermon last year on racism was the first sermon he's ever heard about racism. Like the guy's been Christian for 20, 30 years, and that's the first sermon he's ever heard. So it's encouraging for me, but it's also really disheartening. So we have to keep talking about this, and we have to be committed to each other, and that's why membership is so important, because I say, no matter how hard it gets, I'm committed to you. I'm with you. We're a part of the same family. And when things get uncomfortable, I'm not going to bail. So may, may our identity in Christ be first. May all your identities bow down at the feet of Jesus, and may we together be a physical manifestation of God's heart for the nations here at Liberty Northeast and in our own lives. And let's pray and ask God and start working towards these things. Ask God to show us the way forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truthfully, I'm pretty bad at this. This is a sermon as much as it's confession. I ask you to forgive me. I've avoided conversations with people I know who are going to disagree with me politically. I've avoided conversations and friendships with people who look different than I do, people who talk differently than I do. And honestly, Lord, it doesn't reflect your heart and I'm sorry. And I pray that we at Liberty Northeast would work towards this, that we would fight for it, that it would be something important in our lives and in our church. We pray that you would show us the way forward. I honestly don't completely know, but we're asking for this. Be with us as we try to be called out ones and try to make this active in our lives and in our workplaces and in our homes and on our teams and with our roommates. 
Help us, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.